Here at the beginning of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, it's a good reminder that history is never neutral. It's always told from some point of view, even if that point of view is not always explicitly acknowledged. If you sign up for a class on black history, like you know what you're signing up for. If you sign up for a class on women's history, Latin American history, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender history, there's truth in the advertising. But too many courses, too many history books, etc., have the allegedly neutral title like history when it might more accurately be called white, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied male history. You know, it's what's really being kind of centered. It matters which stories we choose to tell and from what perspective. And if you're not in the room when it happens, if you're not at the table, you might end up on the menu. When decisions are made, always be sure to notice who decides and who benefits and who is kind of losing out. A turning point in my own understanding of history was about two decades ago when I read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. How many of you have read, read this book? All right, good. Uh, it retells America's story from the point of view and in the words of America's women and factory workers and African Americans and Native Americans and the working poor and immigrant laborers. And in more recent years, I've learned a lot from the Revisioning American History series published by Beacon Press, owned by our own Unitarian Universalist Association. And really stretching back over the past decade, back to about 2014, I first preached a sermon out of the series on a queer history of the United States. And then we did the next year a disability history of the United States. And the next year an indigenous people's history of the U.S. Uh, And then a few years later, an African-American and Latinx history of the U.S. And more recently, a black women's history of the U.S. And you can see one of these, there's actually increasingly young people's versions of each of these books um, as well. So I encourage you to check out these books, uh, check out these sermons in our archive if you want to dive more into any of these perspectives. And Beacon Press has planned forthcoming installments retelling U.S. history from black power and Mexican and social movement and protest and black queer perspectives. So I look forward to sharing about you with those in the future. For now, since it is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, uh, uh, today's sermon is inspired by the latest installment of that series, Asian Asian American Histories of the United States. It's by uh, Catherine Sinaza Choi, a professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, that that bastion of conservatism, right? I appreciate um, that plural right there in the middle, the word histories in plural, uh, because as we've been talking about so far, we need multiple perspectives, especially to understand a group as big and diverse as Asian Americans. The more than 23 million Asian Americans in this country today trace their roots to more than 20 different countries in East and Southeast Asia, as well as the Indian subcontinent. The big tent of Asian Americans, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about East Asia, countries such as China and Japan and South Korea. We're also talking about South Asia, countries such as India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka. But we're also talking about Southeast Asia, countries like Thailand and Vietnam and the Philippines and and many, many more. And this isn't even getting into the history of native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. So, so far we've been focusing on the Asian half of Asian American, but it's equally important to underscore the American half. 
In the words of the actor and social justice activist George Takei, Asian Americans are Americans. And segments of the Asian American community have been here since the 1840s. For many Chinese Americans, it's their great great-grandparents, or even more great, who first immigrated here to the United States. As for Takei himself, where is he from? Yes, he's Japanese-American, but if you asked him where he's from, he would say, I'm from Los Angeles, California, the United States. That's where I was born. That's where I grew up. I remember the first time a similar truth uh, really struck home with me. I was at a week-long orientation for a summer camp in North Carolina, and I was introduced to a fellow counselor who was Chinese-American. But when he opened his mouth, he had the strongest Southern accent I have ever heard in my life. Uh, And getting to know him over the course of the summer, it was very clear that he identified as being from Mississippi. Let me say a little bit more about uh, George Takei. Uh, George Takei. Although he is best known for being cast in 1965 to play uh, the Star Trek character Lieutenant Sulu, another pivotal part of his story is that two decades before that, in 1942, when Takei was five years old, the U.S. government imprisoned George and his parents, U.S. citizens, in internment camps during World War II. Takei has shared that even after their release three years later, he said, our bank accounts were taken, our home was taken, our business was gone, and the only place we could find to live was in Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, which to us kids, he was eight at the time they got released. He said, it was as traumatic as the day the soldiers came and took us away. Imprisoning approximately 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them U.S. citizens, in concentration camps without trial and for no other crime than the ethnicity they had been born into, is one of World War II's greatest human rights atrocities. It's also important to know that official U.S. government reports from investigations into Japanese-American communities prior to the internment camps stated that, quote, the vast majority of Japanese-Americans are overwhelmingly loyal to the U.S., and yet we created the internment camps anyway. Fear and racism led to this wrongful imprisonment. Even more perversely, it turns out there were 19 American citizens who were arrested during World War II for serving as agents of Japan, All 19 were white. The memory of these concentration camps, it underscores the importance today in our, we can't, we have to give up all hope of a better past, but it underscores the importance today of of taking action today against fear-mongering and lies and xenophobia against Asian Americans and other historically oppressed groups. So, so far we've been tracing two starting points for how do we tell Asian American histories of the U.S. The first began in the 1800s with Asian American families who had been here for many, many generations. Uh, Another starting point begins in 1942 with the internment camps. But Choi's book is really, really interested in how our experience of history and how our reaction to history can shift depending on where we start the story. So let me give you another fruitful place to begin. And that's the passage of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. Previous to 1965, our immigration policy here in the United States was highly discriminatory in favor of white immigrants from Northern and Western Europe. The Immigration Act in 1965 made our country's immigration much more equitable, and I want to give you just a few examples of the result of that 1965 law. 
The Korean immigrant population grew from 11,000 in 1960 to almost 300,000 in uh, 1980, a 2,500% increase. The Pakistani immigrant population also grew exponentially from around 30,000 in 1980 to almost 275,000 in 2015. More recently, from 2000 to 2019, the Nepalese population increased from just 9,000 to almost 200,000. So one way of telling the story is that before 1965, the vast majority of Asian Americans were Chinese and Japanese and Filipino and Indian and Korean. After 1965, the big tent of Asian Americans has just diversified dramatically. So it now includes Vietnamese and Pakistani and Thai and Cambodian. And some of you will know the term Hmong, which is the indigenous people of Asia and Southeast Asia. Like we have Native Americans indigenous to this continent. So the Hmong people, uh, Laotian, Bangladeshi, Nepalese, uh, um, Burmese, Indonesian, Sri Lankan, Malaysian, Mongolian, Bhutanese, and more. Here's one more important piece of where we can begin to tell Asian American histories of the United States. Three years after that Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 was this kind of sort of catalytic increase in Asian American immigration, we saw the beginnings of an organized Asian American movement for social justice in this country. In 1968, UC Berkeley graduate students Emma Gee and Yuji uh, Ichiaka coined the term Asian American when they founded the Asian American Political Alliance. Uh, this photo is of Guy and Ichiaka at, in 1999 at the 30th anniversary of the celebration of the establishment of the Asian American Studies Center at UCLA. Before the Asian American movement, most Asian immigrants found themselves mostly divided by national uh, origin, by region, or even by hometown. And you also had that previous term, um, quite problematic term, oriental, that was very kind of otherizing, very uh, exoticizing, very objectifying. And this Asian American, or what is sometimes called the yellow power movement, was a movement by and for Asian Americans that sought to be uh, emphasize self-determination, emphasize liberation. Along those lines, let me give you one more example of why it matters whether you're in the room when it happens, when choices are made about how history is told. I wonder how many of you will know the, the name Corky Lee. This feels especially poignant because he died uh, two years ago. He was the self-proclaimed unofficial Asian American photographer laureate. For five decades, Corky Lee captured pivotal moments in Asian American history, many of which raised awareness and resistance against violence and injustice that people would not have known about if Corky hadn't been there to take pictures and publicize them. And a fascinating part of his story, you know, sort of his origin story is this five decades of, as a social justice photographer. It happened because of a history book that he read in elementary school. His elementary school history textbook, and many of you may have had this photo in your textbook, included a famous photograph taken in 1869 to celebrate the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. 90% of the workers who built the western half of the Transcontinental Railroad were Asian American. But Lee looked closely at this picture, and he saw that every face was white. Not a single Asian American was represented. And he decided at that moment as an elementary school student to dedicate his life to making sure that similar erasures stopped happening for Asian Americans. 
Of particular note is that in 2014, on the 145th anniversary of Transcontinental Railroad's completion, Lee invited descendants of Chinese rail workers to gather in that same spot where the original photo had been taken. The group of Asian Americans included young and old, wearing contemporary as well as period clothing. They were smiling big, the joy was palpable. He called these moments photographic justice. The stories we tell matter, and it is never too late to learn to tell the stories of our past in ways that are more just, more pluralistic, more multicultural. For now, as I move toward my conclusion, let me be sure to note a few significant breakthroughs in representation uh, among Asian Americans, because representation does matter. In 2020, Kamala Harris uh, became the first Asian and first black American woman elected as vice president. Her mother immigrated from India, her father from Jamaica. Her middle name is Devi, which is the Sanskrit word for goddess. Uh, and she grew up attending both a black Baptist church and a Hindu temple. She's a member of both the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. The next year in uh, 2021, Marilyn Strickland became the first member of Congress to be sworn in wearing a hanbok, a traditional Korean dress. You can see her there in the middle. Uh, that day she tweeted, as a woman of both Korean-American and African-American descent, it was deeply personal to me to wear my hanbok, which not only um, symbolizes my heritage as well as honors my mother, but also serves as a larger testament to the importance of diversity in our nation, our state, and in the people's house. A month later, in February 2021, some of you will recognize this face, Glenn from The Walking Dead. Uh, Steve Yen best, uh, became the first Asian American to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor in the film Minari. Uh, and then in March of 2021, in response to increases in Asian American violence, um, Time Magazine published this um, powerful cover titled, With Softness and Power. The artist behind the cover said this image is meant to reflect the immeasurable strength of Asian American women who are the connective tissue in many communities and yet are too often overlooked, fetishized, dehumanized, and underestimated. My hope is to see the beauty of our people reflected in the colors of the communities in a dignified and respectful way. Some of you may also know the show Never Have I Ever, uh, streaming on Netflix. Uh, its fourth season will be released next month. It was created by Mindy Kaling. Uh, many of you will know her as Kelly from the NBC sitcom The Office. Uh, Never Have I Ever is a coming-of-age show about an Indian-American teenager and has been praised for challenging Asian-American stereotypes. Along these lines, it may be helpful to spend just a little bit of time here at the end directly addressing the harmful stereotypes that all Asians are good at math or were raised by tiger moms. On the one hand, it's true that 49% of Asian Americans have college degrees compared with only 28% of other U.S. adults. And I'll say my closest relative, who is Chinese American, 100% identifies as a tiger mom. So, I mean, it's a thing, but not, but not for everyone. Uh, on the other hand, Asians are also overrepresented on the other end of the spectrum. A greater proportion of the Asian American population has less than a ninth grade education compared to the U.S. population as a whole. So it's important to keep in mind that the achievement in some areas by the Asian American community, which we should celebrate, can also mask the racism and the poverty and the other oppressions that continue to devastate other um, parts of the Asian American community. 
If you're interested in learning more, I highly recommend learning more. Even just Google later, the Asian American Center of Frederick is regularly and for years has been doing incredible work under the leadership of their executive director, Elizabeth Chung. For now, I'll close with this quote from Jose Antonio Vargas, a Filipino-American journalist and immigration rights activist. On the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, Vargas published an undocumented immigrant's version of the I Have a Dream speech, in which he declared, I have a dream of citizenship in a country that I call my home to a nation that I want to keep contributing to. I have a dream of not being judged by the pieces of paper I lack, but by the content of my character and the talent and skills that I offer. I have a dream of being a free human being. And that feels really poignant to me as someone about to lead a pilgrimage of U.S. citizens to Israel and Palestine next month, just really kind of keeping in mind all the doors that can be unlocked with a U.S. passport that I did nothing to deserve other than being born into this country, and particular poignant, of course, of the borders around Palestine. So it's just, just something to hold. May we each do what we can within our spheres of influence to turn such dreams of having free human beings, turning those dreams into deeds. As we hold all that in our heart, I invite you to rise, embody your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 187, It Sounds Along the Ages. <laughs>